0: we began last week our series in the pastoral epistles and so i ask that you turn again in your bibles to first timothy first timothy we will be for some time looking at first timothy then titus and then second timothy together if the lord gives us life and health and what it requires to do so now <clears throat> I'm going to be saying a great deal about false teaching because this is what the text is about. I want to make something really clear before we read the text and and pray together, and that is that there may be those with whom we have significant differences that should not be denominated false teachers. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I have many friends who are Baptist ministers. Now, my Baptist minister friends and I differ on the subject of baptism. Is that an insignificant difference? No, I think it's a very important difference. I believe that I'm biblical. My friends believe that they are biblical. We have a significant difference of opinion, and that difference of opinion has practical implications for how you view the church, for how you view children in the church, But I would never say that Al Mohler, for example, is a false teacher. He's a very fine teacher, and I would be very happy for him to fill this pulpit. So there are fine men with whom we have differences of opinion who are sound teachers in the faith. But when it comes to crucial matters such as the doctrine of God, the person and work of Christ, these are the sorts of issues that Paul in particular has in mind and we must be careful to inspect the ministry of those who teach. And when we see these falsehoods, there are some who simply must be denominated false teachers. So please keep that in mind. And now we would pray before reading this passage in First Timothy. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, we ask in Jesus' name that you will bless the proclamation of your word, that as it is read and preached, your blessed Holy Spirit will be working within our hearts and souls to help us to see Jesus on the page, that we may know that our redemption is completely and utterly through him who loved us and gave himself for us, and that as your people grow in grace this morning, that those among us who may be lost and undone would come to a knowledge of Jesus. As Lord and Savior, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. This is the word of God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel. Of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now you will remember that the Apostle Paul is passing from the scene. He's coming to the end of his life and to the end of his ministry, and he knows that he and the apostolate will no longer be there for the church. And as he is going to move from the scene, he desires to pass the torch to other sound and faithful men who can teach soundly the truth as it is in Jesus, in particular in the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. He is ensuring that men are in place to instruct, to pastor, to shepherd, to protect, and to lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the truth. And he has especially in view the assaults on the truth, which will increase as the church matures and goes through history in the latter days. Last week you will recall that I gave reasons for stressing the pastoral epistles and I think it's important that we have those in our mind and I want to repeat them to you now. We need to stress the pastoral epistles because we need to understand the pastoral office. The Bible, especially the pastorals, are clear about what that office is all about. Because bad pastors ruin the church. Remember that passage in Hosea 4.9, like priests, like people. Well, the same can be applied in our age to pastor and people. Like pastor, like people, bad pastors morally but also doctrinally ruin the church, destroy the church. Also, we need to stress the pastoral epistles because of the onslaught of modern thought. We are, in our culture, products of the Enlightenment. We believe that we can do very well without any revelation from God. We don't need His Word, and we think autonomously. We come up with our own idea of what is right and wrong, good and bad, what is ethical, on the basis of our own autonomous thinking. We develop our own doctrine, our own view of God and man and the world, apart from the Word of God. Well, the church cannot do that. Believers may not do that. And so we need to stress the pastorals because the pastorals teach us how to stand against the onslaught of that kind of thinking. We need to stress the pastorals because of the call of the church to be different from the world, different in our doctrine and different in our living. And the pastorals stress this. And we need also to stress the pastoral epistles because of God's call upon us to pass down the truth to our natural and to our spiritual children, which is countercultural because pop culture And we are all imbued with that spirit, whether we like it or not. We as believers need to be very much on guard as we think Christianly about the influences of the culture around us. Pop culture is all about now. It's about today. It's about what can can benefit me now, what can pump up my emotions now, my present experience. It's all about that. And so Christianity is not about that. Christianity is about what is true, what has always been true and always will be true. And we want to pass these things down to our natural and to our spiritual children. Now, Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus. We read in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's left Timothy in Ephesus, and Paul, you will recall, spent three years being used of the Lord to build up this church. But when he last saw the Ephesian elders, we read in the book of Acts his farewell. And this is what Paul the Apostle says to the elders at the church at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is in Acts 20. Paul spent three years building up this church. When he leaves, he says to the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem, he meets them in Miletus, and he says, what is going to happen is this. Not only will there be attack of ravenous wolves from without, but there will be those from within who will teach false doctrine to this church. So, if it is true that the, the Apostle Paul is used of the Lord to establish this church and that ravenous wolves attack from without and false teachers from within. Do you think we're going to escape as we preach the gospel and believe his truth in this day and age? Certainly we can expect attack given the great start of the church at Ephesus. And as a matter of fact, you will remember that our Lord Jesus Christ said, Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The Lord Jesus says, false prophets will come. In the book of Titus, in chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul speaking to Titus says, their mouths must be stopped. They must be stopped. Now, already he's ministering, Timothy, in a very, very difficult setting. Ephesus, of course, is the seat of the idolatry of immoral Diana worship. And so there is incredibly, indescribably immoral living all around. Eusebius reports that Timothy was beaten to death by a mob because of his opposition to Diana worship. We don't know that that's the case, but it probably is the case. The church being different from the world, Timothy beaten by a mob because of his opposition to the worship of Diana So it's a hard setting in which to minister because of the assaults from outside, but it's also a very, very difficult setting because of false teachers within the church. Already you will recall we mentioned Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20 of this chapter, whom Paul says he handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it's a hard setting. Attacks from without, attacks from within... Calvin says, to keep what has been gained is not a smaller virtue than to make new acquisitions. Now, that's a very important thing for us to hear. The Apostle Paul is not simply concerned with expanding the kingdom with new church plants, the Apostle Paul is also concerned to keep and to keep solid and to keep sound those churches that have already been planted. So with that in mind, let's look at this text, and the first thing that I want you to see is error in the Ephesian church. The error is described for us here in this passage. First it says that there are some or certain ones who are teaching a different doctrine. He says that in verse 3. He wants him to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now we don't know how many that is, it could be many, it could have been few. But it only takes one to wreck a good ministry. One person teaching false doctrine, holding court, gathering people around him. It only takes one person to ruin a faithful ministry. And then these are people who have desire to be teachers of the law and to be known as teachers of the law. We see that in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. So they're teaching the Mosaic Law in a way that subverted the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a different message than the message that Paul had brought. In verse three, he says, "Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." Heterodidaskalein, hetera, a different type, a different sort of teaching than Paul had brought himself wrongly teaching the law in a way that subverted Paul's gospel and his work there in Ephesus, Timothy is to stand against them. What are the characteristics of this false teaching? Well, we are told as we read along that it is characterized by myths or fables. In Titus 1.14, they are called Jewish myths, such as would have been found in the book of Jubilees or later in the Talmud. In verse 4, we read of endless genealogies. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be interested in your family history. What this means is the Jewish habit of taking genealogies and spinning off of these genealogies all sorts of myths and fables and tales, promoting speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. And then in verse 6, we are told that all of this led to vain discussion Mataya logia. Mataya means aimless, not just vain. Aimless discussions, worthless discussions that do not edify, do not instruct, do not lead to Christ, but rather lead away from Him. Now, in chapter four of this book, in the first three verses, we are also told that these teachers forbid people to marry, requiring abstinence from certain foods, so there's a kind of ascetic lifestyle that is required of people. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we read of irreverent, silly myths. In Titus 1.10, insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers that are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And what does Paul say the attitude of Timothy and Titus should be? Well, look at Titus for a moment. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Titus 3, 9 and 10. He says to him, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So this false teaching in this church is Jewish in character, emphasized the law in such a way that it tears down gospel and probably has certain Gnostic elements. And in Titus 1:11, we read, "They must be silenced. And in this verse, three of First Timothy one. We read that Timothy is to charge these certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine. So I ask you the question, do you think that false teaching is something that we simply may tolerate in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think it has little influence upon us? That's not Paul's view. It's not the view of the apostles of the church. It's not the view of the divinely inspired word of God. Is this view of the church prevalent in our country that we should just simply give in to to false doctrine? Well, yes, it is. What's your view? That's what concerns me right now. What is your view of this matter? If your session, for example, your elders deal with something like this, some false teaching, some false doctrine, or your presbytery, will you rejoice in their faithfulness in discipline or you, will you become riled by their intolerance? Because intolerance, after all, or tolerance, is the great virtue of our day, is it not? What determines you, Scripture and its view of this matter, or the spirit of the age? Will you, as a church, be determined to stand against false teaching and false doctrine, or will you give in to it? So that's first. That's the error in Ephesus. But secondly, I want you to see to what false teaching leads. So the question is, to what does false teaching lead? And I want to mention two things only. First of all, false teaching leads to confusion. Notice in verse 4 of 1 Timothy 1, "...nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith." And in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So these false teachers don't understand what they're saying, and they're lost in this endless speculation. They're totally confused people, and that's what they want for their followers. They want to lead them into this morass of confusion, because it subverts the gospel, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel according to verse four is by faith that leads to confidence and assurance. It leads us away from confusion. It clears the mind, it clears the heart of confusion. In contrast to this false teaching then, we have the confidence of the gospel. Listen, works righteousness always produces confusion in the soul. Always produces confusion in the soul. So when you see Paul the Apostle, for example, writing to the Galatians, and in chapter 1 of Galatians, he says this, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That is to say, let him be doomed, let him be damned. Is Paul the Apostle who proclaims these things expressing your attitude as well? Do you understand that false teaching is so debilitating to the life of the church, so soul-destroying that it must be opposed and that it must be removed root and branch? So, false teaching first of all leads to confusion, but false teaching also erodes love. We read in verse 5 the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, false teachers will feign love. They will tell you that they love you, but that's not their aim. Their aim is building up of themselves, money, gathering themselves, people around them for their own ends and for their own aims. But their end is not love. In contrast with this, we read in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. A pure heart, a good conscience, true faith issues in true love. And love always speaks the truth. It doesn't speak falsehood. It doesn't speak lies. It doesn't speak error. These things, as Hendrickson points out pure heart, good conscience, true faith, issuing in love these things are not natural, they are supernaturally produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But false teachers were contrary to all of these things. They did not have a pure heart, they do not have a good conscience, they do not have true faith issuing in love. And indeed, in verse 6, we are told they swerve from these things. They wander away from these things. William Hendrickson puts it very powerfully. The path which these people have taken is not even a detour. It is more like a dead-end street beyond which lies a swamp, in their case the swamp of feudal talk, useless reasonings, argumentation that gets nowhere, dry as dust disputation, a wrangling about fanciful tales and pedigrees. Yes, their vaunted learning has finally earned them the no man's land of ceremonious subtleties in the dreary marsh of ridiculous hair splitting, and the owner of that quagmire is Satan, who heads the welcoming committee. True leaders are desirous and strive for godly doctrine. True leaders are desirous of and strive for godly living. So remember what the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 7, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. That doesn't mean it might not look good. And might require a great deal of fruit inspection for you to see. But false teachers do not love Jesus, do not love the souls of men. And I want to remind you of something very important, that in chapter 4, verse 1, we're told the ultimate source of this. For Paul says, now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. What is the source of this? The devil himself who is a liar. Deceitful spirits and demons. This morning I was teaching on the life of J. Grusom Machen in a class, and uh, it brought to mind actually a statement of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, that great defender of the faith who taught so many students at Old Princeton Seminary when it was the greatest theological school in in the world. He used to bend over his lectern and he would look his young men in the eye and he would say, gentlemen, a bad theology stems from a bad heart. Now that's true. Do you see it? Do you believe it? It may look good but it damns the soul. Third thing, what motivates false teachers? Well, ultimately, I think we can say it's pride. Look at verse 7 again. Desiring to be teachers of the law. That is, they wanted to be held in esteem as teachers of the law, gathering people around them, and how often with false teachers is coupled this inordinate love for money. And if, if you don't think that there's a lot of money in false teaching, well, just watch what is often called Christian television, it's there. Is it wrong to esteem a teacher? No, it's right to esteem a true teacher. But if a teacher invents falsehoods to be esteemed, we have a problem. They are discontented with the gospel. They love novelties. The gospel is not enough. They want something more. A true teacher is filled with the fear of God, the awesome responsibility of expositing the text and preaching and teaching to the people of God. The true teacher has a fear to say what is not true. A false teacher is not controlled by God's glory, he is not controlled by love for the souls of men, and he is not controlled by a heart that is humbled in the presence of a sovereign God. False teachers, according to verse 7, have no understanding their systems are completely ignorant systems. No true spiritual discernment, no real commitment to the Word of God. And oh, how subtle this can be. Years ago, in the modernist fundamentalist controversy, there was a man whose name was Harry Emerson Fostic. Many of you know his name. He was a great speaker and was considered by many to be one of the great Christian leaders of our nation. He was on the radio. Everybody listened to Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was quoted in the newspapers and magazines. He was interviewed. He wrote books that were popular. He spoke all over the country. He was heard on radio with great regularity. And everybody quoted him. So you would go to this little Baptist church where they believe the gospel and the people there would be quoting Harry Emerson Fosdick as if he were a believer. Harry Emerson Fosdick did not believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin or had been raised from the dead and did not believe that he was God. They were completely led astray because they were undiscerning. Today it's someone like Joel Osteen who doesn't teach the truth. And people are led astray by it. So what motivates these false teachers? They want to be held in esteem. It's pride, discontentment with the gospel. They're not filled with the fear of God. They have a lack of understanding. But then I want you to see also from the text that false doctrine, false teaching perverts the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with a specific error. And so he gives to us a specific example that we can use this morning about false teaching that perverts the gospel. The specific example here is these folks want to be teachers of the Mosaic law in a way that perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they hold up the law of God and they say, we're upholders of the law. We want to teach the law. We want you to understand the law and we want to teach this law to you here in the church. And Paul answers them by saying, yeah, the law, the law is good because it comes from the hand of God. It reflects his character. The law is good, but the law cannot save a sinner. Verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So with these false teachers, there is no Christ alone who saves. There's no blood, there's no gospel, there's no faith in Christ alone that saves. All cults and theological liberalism are confused about who God is, who Christ is, what Christ has done for sinners, and they are confused about the relationship between law and gospel. Now, What does Paul then say in this specific example about the law? He says in verse 9 that the law is not made for a righteous man. Now Paul is not talking about every possible use of the law. He's addressing specifically those people who want to teach works righteousness by the law. And he says what they don't get is that the law is not made for a righteous man. That is, law cannot save the sinner. Good works cannot redeem. Morality cannot save us from our sins. The law cannot save because the law is given for sinners to show up our sin, It cannot redeem us from our sin. The law condemns. It brings us to the end of ourselves. Now note that Paul has the Ten Commandments in mind. Did you notice that as we were reading? Lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, in a broad sort of way covers the first table of the law. But then he goes on in the end of verse 9, striking father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. Murderers, that's the sixth commandment. Fornicators and homosexuals, that's a breach of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery means you shall have a heart and life of sexual purity. By the way, arsenakoitis, the word that is here translated homosexuals, we are being told by many today, doesn't mean homosexual. And that's because the church, once again, is being pressured to give in to the spirit of the age and just follow what the world teaches. It's a compound word in Greek that means male and bed. Couldn't be clearer. So, fornicators and homosexuals, the seventh commandment. He goes on and mentions kidnappers, that's the breach of the eighth commandment, Liars and perjurers, a breach of the ninth commandment, and then he says, in any other thing, contrary to sound doctrine. The word sound here, hugaino, hugaino, means promoting good spiritual health. Sound doctrine that promotes good spiritual health. For good spiritual health, it is essential that you know and believe and have weighed down in the marrow of your bones. Sound doctrine. And you will not be spiritually healthy without it. So that the law is for sinners, accords with the gospel. That's why he says in verse 11, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This sacred trust of the gospel that has been given to me. So their view of the law conceals the gospel, because their view of the law is that you put it out there and tell people it's keepable, and that when you keep the law, you can be saved by it. A view of the law that condemns us is the view of the law that is in accord with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, and only this displays God's glory in the salvation of sinners. So as I'm instructing my sheep and my people this morning, I ask someone who may be here today who doesn't know Christ, are you outside of Christ? Do you know Christ alone as your Savior and as your Redeemer? False teachers would keep you lost. False teachers don't want you to be saved from your sin. They may talk about sin, they may talk about salvation, but it's not Christ alone. They don't want you to be saved. They puff you up in self-righteousness. Now listen, God gave his awesome law in lava and smoke on Mount Sinai, reflecting his perfection. And the only reason men can think that they are good is because they do not know this law. To know the law aright exposes the depths of the depravity of the human heart. One breach of the law, according to the Bible, is breaking all of the law. The law can only condemn. The law is there to probe the wound so that you hurt more. The law is there to burden the conscience. The law throws open the curtains and lets the light of God's perfection shine in so that you may see the sin and depravity of the heart. Only the unbroken law can God accept, and that's none of us. The law sends thunderbolts to the sinner's conscience. The law makes us cower under the unbearable holiness of the thrice-holy God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in his autobiography, opens a chapter that speaks of his conversion in this beautiful way. My heart was fallow and covered with weeds, but on a certain day the great husbandman came and began to plow my soul. Ten black horses were his team, and it was a sharp plowshare that he used, and the plowers made deep furrows. The Ten Commandments were those black horses, and the justice of God, like a plowshare, tore my spirit. I was condemned, undone, destroyed, lost, helpless, hopeless. I thought hell was before me. Then there came a cross plowing, for when I went to hear the gospel, it did not comfort me. It made me wish I had a part in it, but I feared that such a boon was out of the question. The choicest promises of God frowned upon me, and his threatenings thundered at me. I prayed, but found no answer of peace. It was long with me thus. What is Mr. Spurgeon saying? That as he grew up and he heard the law of God... The Spirit of God, over time, used that law in order like ten great horses to plow the furrows of his heart so that he saw himself to be a sinner in need of a Savior. And over time, God broke through with the light of his glorious gospel and showed him law, morality, works, self-righteousness, self-esteem cannot save You need a Redeemer. And that's true for you. And it's true for each one of us here today. So Paul is pointing to these false teachers. He says, look, you see them teaching the law. They want to be esteemed as teachers. Yes, they talk about Christ, but basically they're telling sinners you are saved by being good. Well, you cannot, says Paul. Who obeyed the law that you broke? It is Christ. Who paid the penalty for sinners on the cross? It is Christ and Christ alone. And so I say to you, my sinner friend, as I say to my own heart, look to Christ. None but Jesus can do poor sinners good. Why do you not even at this moment cry out in your heart for mercy? If you understood anything of the perfection of the law of God and you're lost and dead in trespasses and sins... If the Spirit of God indeed is working in your heart to show you your sin, why do you not even at this moment cry out for mercy before the Lord? And oh, how he works to show sinners and to convict us of our sins. You know, I have many pleasant memories about people coming to faith in Christ. When I came to faith in Christ as a 13-year-old boy, immediately what I did was begin to share the gospel with people. I remember sitting across from this young man, his name was Jeff, and I told Jeff about the gospel. Now, I didn't know much, but I knew what it meant to be a sinner, and I knew that I needed a Savior, and so I told Jeff that. I still remember Jeff listening intently, breaking into uncontrollable sobbing and weeping and shedding tears. I don't think because of natural affection. I think because for the very first time, Jeff saw his need of a redeemer. On Sunday afternoons when I was a boy, 13, 14 years old, I would go down to Central City Park in Macon, Georgia, my hometown. Now, this was the day of the Allman Brothers, all right? They grew up down the street from me. I don't know if you know, know that, but they grew up right down the street from me. You see, these were people we would wave at when we would pass on the road. The rock bands would gather there in Central City Park And the young people would flock there. They finally closed it because of all the marijuana and everything, but they would flock there. I took my little New Testament. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was learning. I took my little New Testament, and every young person that I could buttonhole down there, I would open my New Testament and show him about Jesus, tell him about Christ, try and bring him to the Savior. Why? because in my own life I had come to understand that though I was brought up to be a moral young man, and I was, though I was taught by my parents to do all the right things, and they did, and they were right to do that, I thought I was saved by those things until one day I heard a terrible preacher. I mean, a really bad preacher. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God broke through my heart and showed me. It doesn't matter what kind of a good boy i had been. I knew my heart was rotten to the core. And I needed a savior. Do you see that? Do you understand that? That's why Paul is upset. That's why Paul is concerned. That's why he's left Timothy here. Because there are these false teachers who are teaching that by obedience to the law, you can be saved and other things that were contrary to the gospel. So what is a pastor to do when there's false doctrine in his flock? What is he to do when he sees false doctrine in the presbytery? What is a pastor to do when there's false doctrine? Pander it? No. Prohibit it. Verse 3 of this chapter. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Par on Command them. Charge them. It's an aorist, meaning decisive action must be taken. They must be stopped. It is the responsibility of the minister to stop false doctrine being taught in the church. But not only that, also to encourage repentance and a positive response. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 5, the aim of our charge, the aim is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal is to produce love, and when you're not speaking the truth, you are not loving people. Gospel love can only issue from a pure heart that is cleansed by the blood of Calvary, a good conscience, one that is not condemned but justified by grace, and literally an unhypocritical faith. A faith that is thoroughly sincere. So false doctrine, my friends, here's what I want you to see. False doctrine is no game. It's not some innocuous thing that we can just pass by. False doctrine is no game. False doctrine destroys the soul. False doctrine tears down love. False doctrine ruins the church. And false doctrine will keep your children, were it rooted here, would keep your children from knowing Christ. It starts very subtly, shaving the edges on the biblical doctrine of the authority of the Bible. Maybe that can be the first step. And then questions about the atonement, and then denying the imputed righteousness of Christ. And my flock, what I want you to understand that it doesn't matter who says it, It doesn't matter. If these things are denied, these things must be stopped. They must be stopped. I don't care who says we're justified by grace plus works, it's false teaching. I don't care who it is who seems to be so pristine that denies the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's law rather than gospel to deny the imputed righteousness of Christ. And Spurgeon rightly said in his day, too many ministers are toying with the deadly cobra of another gospel in the form of modern thought. And it seems so smooth, and it seems so plausible. And so you are called to be alert, and you are called to be discerning. And I challenge you to value the truth and to value it supremely. Wasn't it Walter Martin who said something like, the average evangelical Christian can be chewed to bits by Jehovah's Witness in 10 minutes? Why is that? Because we don't know the truth. When does it stop? Do you ever get tired of this? No sooner do we deal with one heresy than another one pops up. No sooner does the presbytery deal with one error, another one pops up. No sooner do we see one error in the Presbyterian setting or the Baptist setting, wherever it may be, than another one seems to come along. Always old stuff in new dress. Nothing new under the sun. When does it stop? Don't grow weary in well-doing because it doesn't stop until you die. In church, it won't stop until Christ comes again. You're Christians. And one thing you have to know as a Christian is that your life is now a battle, a glorious battle, a joyful battle, a wonderful battle, but it's a battle for Christ, against the falsehoods, of the world. And if that means, like Spurgeon, being censored by the Baptist Union because he stood for the truth in his day, or if it means like J. Gresham Machen being misjudged by a whole denomination because he stood for the truth in their midst, then so be it. Spurgeon said so beautifully, listen, about fidelity to Christ. I count my own character, popularity, and usefulness to be as the small dust of the balance compared with fidelity to the Lord Jesus. It is the devil's logic which says, You see, I cannot come out and avow the truth because I have a sphere of usefulness which I hold by temporizing with what I fear may be false. Oh, sirs, what have we to do with consequences? Let the heavens fall. But let the good man be obedient to his master and loyal to his truth. O man of God, be just and fear not. The consequences are with God and not with thee. If thou hast done a good work unto Christ, though it should seem to thy poor bleared eyes as if great evil has come of it, yet hast thou done it. Christ has accepted it, and he will note it down, and in thy conscience he will smile, he will smile thee, his approval. So never say, I'll shave my faithfulness to Jesus so that I can be a little bit more accepted by my age. Jeff presented yesterday at our officers meeting one of the finest, finest presentations about dangers that we face now, even in our own denomination. He pointed out how there are some who want to broaden the tent to include theistic evolution and without question could demonstrate that in large measure the reason is because if we don't say we believe it, the world won't listen to us and they think we're a bunch of fools. So be it. So be it. John Gill, the great Calvinist Baptist in the 18th century when he published his book, The Cause of God and Truth. He was told, you publish that book, you're going to lose friends. His answer was, by friends they meant contributors. He said, I can afford to be poor. I cannot afford to have a defiled conscience. Listen, people. What Paul is calling you to and me is absolute clear cut fidelity to Christ no matter the consequences. That's the call. He's calling upon you, Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand for Christ though the stars fall. Will you do it? God's people said. Amen.